we are continuing now um, in our Gospel of Luke, uh, seeing Jesus anew, and uh, we've made it now to the end of the fourth chapter. Uh, and this is uh, uh, yet one more story about Jesus. And again, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're beginning to get a sense of what Jesus' ministry uh, is going to look like as he continues. So I hope that this has been kind of a good time for us just to see Jesus afresh. And I think we'll have perhaps another opportunity to do that today. So this is from Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. He, being Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Then the demon, throwing the man down before them, came out of him without doing him any harm. They were all astounded and kept saying to one another, what kind of word is this that with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out? And news about him began to reach every place in the region. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. And as the sun was setting, all those caring for any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Moreover, demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Messiah. At daybreak, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowds began looking for him. And when they reached him, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he continued proclaiming the message in the synagogue of Judea. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for more of you. May we hear you afresh this morning. And I pray, Lord, that the words in my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, as I said right before I read the scripture, uh, what I want us to be mindful of as we get into this fourth chapter is again, we're just beginning to see the way the story develops. Uh, we're beginning to see um, as we've said a little bit before, of how different Jesus' life and ministry is going to be. The distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And so I want us to look at three different things today. This sermon's going to be a little bit more teaching. Usually I do more preaching. I don't know exactly what it means. It just feels different. But I hope that you bear with me, that you, uh, uh, hopefully you got some good sleep. Uh, I'm not suggesting the sermon's boring, but um, if it is, I apologize. But I think there are some really important things for us to hear here um, that will be helpful as we keep moving through Luke for us to pay attention to. 
Uh, we're, we're told that Jesus was uh, one who was uh, a teaching with a certain amount of authority, that it was clearly different, it seems, the other gospel writers will say, than other scribes or other uh, teachers. And, and, and that the people were astounded. Uh, Pastor Stan in the Scott and Stan video says it's, it was like basically like saying the Greek is like, like they were getting knocked out, right? Like they were getting punched in the face, in other words, by this preaching, right? It was so kind of radically different. And, and, and Luke <clears throat> doesn't really tell us why. What, what made it so different? And of course, then there are lots of theories about what made it different. Some people think, oh, well, you know, what made it different was that their uh, teachers and scholars, they were always just bringing up other sources and quoting other rabbis. But perhaps what Jesus was doing is he, was, he wasn't doing any of that. He's just saying, this is what I think. And so it lent itself to a bit more authority. Others thought, well, you know, it's probably because of the fact that when Jesus talked about God, he wasn't just talking about some, some distant, you know, a far off entity, but that there was a clear intimacy to this. Like he actually knew God. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. It was also a heart thing, an emotional thing. Others would say, you know what, I think it's because of whenever they talked about the kingdom of God, uh, you could tell that, that he could see it, he could smell it, he could, he could taste it, he could hear it, he could do all of these things viscerally, and he really wanted other people to understand that. There's lots of different reasons why. We're not exactly told, we just know that it's different. And, and you know, was that whenever I would read over this, I would always think in the past that this must be that, that Luke and the other gospel writers are actually criticizing the other scribes and teachers and I would say to myself sometimes well I want to preach more like Jesus what is it that makes it different because I want I want to punch people in the face with my sermons and the more that I begin to think about this the more I realize that perhaps Luke and other gospel writers aren't actually criticizing the way others taught maybe they're just trying to point out that Jesus could teach with authority in a different way because you know he's he's just Jesus and nobody Nobody else is. It's not a trick question, Jesus, right? And, and there's actually this gift because sometimes we feel a lot of pressure, right? We who like to do things and succeed, we want to do that. We want to be just like Jesus. And, and the reality is we want to be shaped more and more like him. But remember this, you will never be Jesus. And that is a good thing, amen? So there he is and he's preaching with authority there. And all of a sudden, a man with a demon, or perhaps several demons, all of a sudden begins to shout at Jesus, saying, why are you here? Have you come to destroy me? And Jesus quickly shuts him up, right? More literally in the Greek, he muzzles the man. And there's this great clashing of power. Now, I want to talk about this clashing of power because it's really important to our understanding of who Jesus is, but I don't want to move to that too quickly Instead, I want us to talk for a moment about demons. Now, it would be super easy for me to skirt past this. And in all honesty, I would prefer to. But I also think, you know what? It's not the only time that demons come up. So we should probably ask this question. How comfortable are you talking about demons? I'll tell you this. In those times when people come up to me and say, hey, I want to talk about a demon. The conversation is almost always super weird. So how do we understand demons? I'm, I'm slightly, it feels weird to me. How do we talk about this? What does this look like? And there's several reasons why it's always kind of strange to talk about, at least for me. I don't know about for you. 
right? One of those things is just, you know what? We just need to admit that the church in the past, uh, many times, sometimes not of their own fault, but they've, they've diagnosed people who have real mental struggles uh, with having a demon when perhaps it was really just some kind of mental issue, the chemical imbalance or something, and science hadn't reached that, that point yet or whatever it may be. And, and sometimes they were attributed as having a demon when they, when they really didn't, they were just struggling. And I think we need to acknowledge that reality. Uh, personally, some of the reasons why I struggle with demons is because in the tradition in which I was raised, they, they, um, oftentimes there was conversations about demons. And, and as I've said before, you know, it was like there was almost, you know, there was an angel of death behind every bush or an angel of light. There was, it was constantly, right? And I read these book, um, uh, uh, Frank Peretti novels. Maybe you read them, I don't know. And, and, and it was like all about this kind of spiritual world. And, and it was kind of exhausting as a kid. I just thought, man, there's always just something lurking behind everything. And I would always get worried about it. And then when I went to a Pentecostal college, college, one of the things I always uh, kind of discovered and, and annoyed me with great frequency is that, is that these college kids, you know, of which I was, they, they'd say, you know, they would, they would say, oh man, I made that, you know, I did this over here. Ah, oh, Satan, he won't just let go of me. And I was thinking, you know, it just take some ownership. Amen. That wasn't Satan, that was you. <laughs> and let's be honest, in 2022, when we just start talking about demon talk, for most of us, especially as Presbyterians, it seems kind of uncouth, unmodern, a little bit awkward even. What do we think about this? It's easier, really, just to kind of leave it alone so that we still look somewhat sophisticated and not overly odd. Not surprisingly, as I kept thinking about demons this past week, I was reminded again of the story that C.S. Lewis tells. Uh, you probably know it, this account, uh, Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape is kind of the uncle demon and, and he is, uh, he's helping his nephew, an apprentice demon named Wormwood. And, and, and Wormwood has been assigned, kind of a first assignment you know, to, a, to, a, to a new Christian. And so it's just these letters that go back and forth. It's actually incredibly fascinating. If you haven't read it, you should. It's, it's really Quite interesting. Anyways, in the, in the prologue or the, 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 I don't remember, the foreword or something, C.S. Lewis says, you know what? There's really, two, there's really two errors that we oftentimes make when it comes uh, to, uh, to the devils. He says, one of them is to believe in them so strongly that we have an, un an, an unhealthy and excessive interest in them. And I would see this oftentimes, especially like I said at college where people were always just obsessing with these things and with demons and saying all those things. And I certainly have experienced, I've seen some of that. But he says the other error, the other error is to simply disbelieve in its existence altogether. In fact, he talks about this um, um, Screw tape when he's writing a letter to Wormwood. He said, our policy by and large in the demon world is, is to not let the people who are around notice us at all. We don't want them to notice us. In fact, he says, you know what? If you notice that the person you're working with is beginning to kind of wonder about, you know, some other kind of supernatural, if you will, evil of some sort, just, just conjure up in their mind some man in red tights. Because if you do that, nobody can believe in that guy. Not, not in this day and age, right? So just think about that. And he said, now here's the reason why. We don't like to think, want our people to think about it because if all they think is, all that exists is the material world, everything that you can literally see and touch, then he says, then, then they will become materialists and they will begin to think that this is all that there is. And that's a beautiful goal. We don't want them to think that there's anything beyond what you can just see and touch. 
As I kept kind of wrestling with that and wondering, well, what exactly does that mean? And what is this? All of a sudden, I began to also think about this fact that for us, for most of us, not all of us, we did not all grow up with the same kind of place. I get that. But for many of us who have grown up under a fairly comfortable and safe place, we actually have the liberty and the freedom to not have to think about some kind of separate other evil. And that came to my mind probably four or five years ago uh, when I had the opportunity, uh, and I know several of you have done this, uh, to go with Carver McGriff, uh, a World War II veteran, over to Normandy and to get, hear his um, kind of story about, uh, about his time there. And when we did so, of course, one of the things we did is that we went into the cemetery and we began to walk in the cemetery. You can see the picture here of that cemetery. Most of you have seen this, either in pictures or in real life. And you know, the thing is that before you kind of go to a place like this, and if you haven't lived through it at all, when, when, when you think about, like, I know a decent amount about World War II and the atrocities, and I, I, I've thought about it. But in many ways, it's not until you actually begin to kind of experience it in some way. And, and as I began to walk past each of these crosses, or a star, as you can see right there, I think there's almost 10,000 for women, but mostly all men. And when you see the names or when you, when you think about this, what you realize is that that's, a, that's somebody's son. And for some of them, it's someone's husband. For others, it's someone's father. And all of a sudden, you begin to feel more of the magnitude. The magnitude, this makes sense on Veterans Day, of, of the gratitude that we have for those who have gone, but also then the magnitude for the absolute evil and atrocity of this time. And of course, as I was here, my mind kept coming up to that first scene, I'm not gonna show it, of Saving Private Ryan. You remember that scene? And I mean, you know, sometimes we have this sense of, you know, war and the glory of war, especially, 90, especially those of us who have never been in it. But when you see that, I don't know about for you, but for me, all of a sudden, like the vividness of the evil in this world is something that you cannot just kind of say, oh, well, you know, there are some people who just kind of, you know, go the wrong directions. There's a few misdeeds here and there. No, there is something weighty to this. And while we, most of us may have the privilege or the freedom to just think, no, mostly life is okay. It's not true. That there is real evil and that there is real death and darkness that at times seems much more than just kind of humans doing bad things. I like what Keith Nichols says about this. He says this. He says, a culture that has in its recent past the experience of the German National Socialist Holocaust or the My Lai Massacre and the Charles Manson cult is more prepared to entertain the possibility of supernatural dimensions of evil and the demonic than were previous, quote, post-enlightenment generations. The truth is, no matter how wonderfully scientific we think we may be, how advanced we may be, we have seen again and again, and it doesn't take that long, I could point to current day things to begin to realize that there does seem to be something out there that is other and that we would be somewhat foolish to just disregard. I also, though, really appreciate what Tim Keller says as he continues to look at this passage and at demons. Have you guys ever heard of a 
Presbyterian sermon about demons, by the way. This is weird. But what he says is that in Scripture with demons, what you begin to realize is that in many ways, it is just the extreme end of a condition that we are all in. Here's what he means by that. That almost all of us have some particular kind of sin or brokenness with which we continually struggle. With which, another way to put this, is something that possesses us. It might be alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be greed. It might be beauty. It might be youth. It might be experiences. It can be almost Anything, anything that is not God and that possesses us is one of these things that can simply almost take over in some strange way. I find it somewhat providential that this very week I was overhearing a story here in our building and someone was relaying about how a loved one that he had, how she's struggling with alcoholism. And he said, you know, one of the things I always have to remind myself that whenever she's in one of these spaces or places is I have to remember, you know what, this is not her. Isn't that interesting verbiage? And the truth, of course, is almost all of us who have someone who is a loved one, we can remember this, that sometimes it feels like someone else has taken over the person that we love. But what does that mean? It's clearly the sense that there's something that is other. I can remember, and I told this story a little while back, I told some of the story the, uh, about going into a former parishioner's uh, uh, um, it was uh, her, let me get, start this over again. A former parishioner of mine whose son was in the hospital, whose body had just been ravaged by alcoholism. And, and, and the part I told was how I went in and, you know, and, and she said, well, you know, as soon as he gets out of here, you know, he's going to go to church. And he was like, no, I'm not. And I don't remember the exact time, probably within a year or so, about two or so in the morning, I got a phone call. And this woman asked if I would please go to her home. And I went to her home and there in the living room, there he lay on a hospital bed with no more life. And I felt two things. I felt incredible grief. But I also felt this sense of powerlessness and this sense of this whole other kind of evil. And I wished that I, like Christ, could have called down some kind of power and scream years earlier and try to muzzle this thing that would not let go of him. It possessed him and it seemed like there was no way for whatever reason, at least at some point, he reached some point where he simply could not let go and he would rather have just simply died. I think evil is something that is real. And while it is not something that I feel like we need to necessarily overly obsess about or think about all the time, I do think it's something that we need to respect. There is a power to this evil. But there is also a power to this God. And you see, this is what we begin to see with Jesus in this particular scene. And it's something that we need to pay attention to because we will see it again and again. This clashing of powers. We've seen it, uh, but we haven't really talked about it a whole lot. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, remember again, came down with them on him at baptism. 
then went out with him into the wilderness, kind of led him out into the wilderness. And then we see here in Galilee, what happens is that Jesus is there with the power of the Holy Spirit. There is some kind of power that Jesus has that is unique and that is different when it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so remember temptations. Eugene Peterson has this great kind of insight, I think, and I want us to hear this. The temptations of Jesus, right? We talked about them not that long ago. Those three temptations, Peterson would say each of these is a power clash. He said, first of all, you have uh, turning, uh, turning stone into bread. He said, this is an opportunity, a temptation for Jesus to have power over creation. Then he says, you know what? He could have ruled. He could have ruled over the nations. And he says, this is a power to, to rule. This is what he's tempting him, just a power to just take over everything. And then the, the temptation of kind of jumping off and having the angels catch him. He said, this is the power of, uh, of the desire to kind of be the talk of the town, to be, to be famous, to be successful. He says, these are all the temptations. Now, here's what Peterson goes on to say. He says, you know what? None of those things in and of themselves are that bad. I mean, to feed the world? Pretty good thing. To rule the nations justly, that's a pretty good thing. Uh, to be able to show people the power and majesty of God, pretty good thing. So why, Peterson asked, why does he not say yes to those things? And here's the reason he says, he said, does not say that. He says, the reason why is because of this. He says that in every time, if Jesus had done that, he would have been using that power impersonally abstracted from relationships. And as we said, when we looked at this passage, without any engagement in actual love. So think about this. He said, no, 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 because that was abstracted. It was just this big kind of, you know, exciting kind of thing, but there was no sense of relationship, no sense of love. And then what does he do? He goes into Galilee, into this little town, right? And he goes into his little area and he goes into these little towns and these little synagogues and he has the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do as soon as he has his power? When he's with the Holy Spirit, then all of a sudden he begins to use the power. He didn't do it with the temptations. He uses it here. What does he do? He sees the person who has a demon inside of him and he casts it aside. He stands over Peter's wife, right? So he's right over her and he casts out the fever. The people who come in, they are healed. And what does he do when he heals? How are they healed? Does he, he touches them every single time. When Jesus uses his power, godly power, it is always personal. It is relational. It is intimate and it is done with love. It is not done in this kind of massive, exciting way. Here's what Peterson goes on to say, that for those of us who are in a community of faith like this, he says this, the moment the community exercises power apart from the story of Jesus, tries to manipulate people or events in ways that short-circuit personal relationships and intimacies, we can be sure it is not the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the devil's work. I hope and pray that you hear the magnitude of that. When we talk here at ZPC about being relational, here's what I want you to know. It is not a nice thing. It is not an interesting thing. It is not something that makes things a little bit better. It is the Jesus thing. And to do anything, when we are trying to help to spread the gospel, to try to do it in any way that is not intimate and personal is always dangerous and a temptation. 
that the way in which the power of the gospel works is through interpersonal relationship. It is through love. It is through relationship. And you know what? That means it's always messier. It's always more complicated. It's always slow. It is rarely efficient. This is a part of the reason why, and you know this, but we're just going to have a little counseling session right here, why I struggle with live stream. Now hear me. I understand that it does have a role. And I get emails from people who are able to hear the live stream and see the live stream. You know this, including my mom, who would otherwise never be able to see it. She watches it so many times, it's really awkward. When you see like 150 people live stream, 40 of those is my mother. (laughs) And for people who are unable to come, maybe they're at a distance. Maybe they're here and maybe they're wrestling with things physically or emotionally. I want you to hear me. I get it and I'm okay with that. But I also know the incredible temptation. If I didn't have to be here, I would feel it to at times have there be no other actual reason for not coming in other than the fact that I wake up a little bit later or I'm not having a good hair day or I don't want to see people that much. And I want you to know that there is always a danger in that. I say this not in order to chastise anybody, but simply to say this, that when you are not here in person, we are missing out on some significant things. That for the spirit to really be able to thrive, it seems to me more often than not, it happens in relationship by being here as people one with another. Now, let me just go off on one little quick other side note, which is something else I sometimes notice is that people think when it comes to like, how do I tell people about Jesus? Here's what I need to do. If I can just get them into church, then Jerry can do that. The best way for anyone to learn about Jesus is from the people with whom they are already in. You know it's an easy out. If we can get the reverend to do it, we can do whatever we want. You, each of you, the strength of Jesus and the gospel, the way that we influence the world is always through these kind of intimate relationships. This is where it works. Let me tell you about one other thing about this. So um, some of my colleagues have been telling me about this book. Uh, I'd never heard of this theologian before, Kosuke Koyama. He's a Japanese uh, 20th century uh, theologian. He wrote this book and you can know, it's such a great title, Three Mile an Hour God. We still got 14 more minutes left. (laughs) Three mile an hour God. Now, interestingly enough, just this week, I read the foreword. I I hadn't seen this. Interestingly enough, he's talking about uh, the World War II years uh, and he called them this. This is just a side note. He calls them the demonic war years. As someone who has lived through it, it's easier to be able to see that. Three mile an hour God. What's this three mile an hour God? Here's what he suggests. He says, you know what? When Jesus was here and he was going from place to place, he was walking. And when you walk, you probably are going about three miles an hour. 
And he said, this is actually the pace then of Jesus. God walks at three miles an hour. Jesus loves at three miles an hour, the sense is. Here's what Koyama continues to say. He says this, love has its speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the logical speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. I love this imagery. We have talked about the importance of slowing down, but I love the fact that the greatest embodiment we have of God is Jesus who walked at three miles an hour. And this is the pace, whether we want it to be or not, this is the pace of love. You cannot fast forward it. You cannot think that if we quickly and efficiently get the gospel everywhere, then that's gonna be the the greatest way for, for people to learn about Jesus. No, it happens slowly. At the risk of disparaging another congregation, I want to tell this quick little story. I don't know even hundred. I think I know who told me this, but I can't completely remember. So forgive me if I'm telling a story that I shouldn't tell. Here is the story. They said, "You know what? When we were at this previous congregation, they said it took us um, it took us three minutes to get from the sanctuary to our car, and then thirty minutes to get out of the parking lot." He said, "At ZPC." They said, it takes you 30 minutes to get from the sanctuary to your car and then three minutes to get out of the driveway or out of the parking lot. The reason for that is not because we're so far away, the cars. It's because you've got to run through a gauntlet of people and there's donuts and there's coffee and there's people to talk to. And now that this is exactly, this is the kind of church that we are called to be, for it to take a while to get out of this place because there are real people with whom you are in relationship, with who you are talking and with who you are listening and with whom you are loving and you are a part of their communal story, that this is our call. It again, it's not a nice thing. It's not a, a neat thing. It's not a fun thing. It is a necessary thing that this church must always be that which is going steady, stable, and plodding three miles an hour, just like Jesus. I want to say one last thing, and that's about miracles. Because miracles obviously are a part of this passage, and they will continue to be a part of the story of Luke. And miracles, of course, are something that fascinates us, just like they fascinated the crowds in Jesus' time. People loved the miracles. They were excited about the miracles. You, you heard probably in this passage that they didn't want to leave, that they wanted Jesus just to stay, just stay, just stay, do more miracles, stay here with us. But Phil Bianzi says, you know what? I'm not sure. I feel like the, I feel like the gospels, they, they try to downplay it. There's probably about three dozen known miracles that we see. But what Jesus begins to see, and you notice it here, is that What happens is that miracles do a great job of drawing a crowd, but they don't always cultivate kind of long-term obedience. And so perhaps what's more fascinating or what's more important when it comes to miracles is not just being like, wow, that was cool. 
and is realizing that underneath it, what exactly is happening, and what is happening, of course, here, is that Jesus is helping to fulfill exactly what he said he would last week, which is the fulfillment of that text in Isaiah of bringing good news to the poor, releasing captives, giving sight to the blind. In other words, what is a miracle doing? A miracle is helping us to, A, remember how things used to be at creation, and it's also a sign of this is the place, this is where things are going. This is what Jesus, when Jesus does these miracles, right? If we can look again at this tapestry, what he's saying is this is what it's gonna look like at the end of this tapestry. When Jesus has returned, this is what the kingdom looks like. People are no longer oppressed, that there is justice, that there is mercy, that the, that the blind have sight, that those who have been chained or who were possessed are no longer. So this is the beauty. This is what it looks like. And then theologian Jürgen Moltmann says this, He says, Jesus's healings are actually not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Here's what Moltmann's saying. First of all, what I like about this is it's saying, you know what, these, it's easy for miracles to become kind of magic. Oh, is that fun? Woo, do it again, do it again, this is great. And he says, no, he says, what we're doing here is he's showing what the future kingdom of God looks like. He's giving a taste, he's giving a glimpse. But here's the other thing I love about this quote, which is this, it is telling us that when a miracle occurs, it is simply the bringing about the new kingdom of God, which means this, That whenever it is that you are telling somebody the good news of Jesus Christ, you know what you are becoming a part of? A miracle. Why? Because you're helping someone to understand the coming kingdom of God. Whenever you go and you teach our covenant children about the love of Jesus and you begin to shape them and form them, you know what you're doing? You are now a part of a miracle. Whenever it is that you're listening to someone who feels like they're possessed, they're addicted, they don't know how to let go of something, you are becoming a part of a miracle. Whenever you give generously to feed somebody spiritually or physically, you are becoming a part of a miracle. I say that not to downgrade the miracles that Jesus did by no means, but I say it to elevate what you understand you are doing. These are not just kind of one-off kind of nice things. Oh, it makes me feel good that we've been kind to somebody today, that we've given them love. Isn't that great? No, you are a part of the miracle of God's coming kingdom. And let me be clear, maybe every once in a while it will happen really fast like it happened with Jesus. But more often than not, Do you know how fast it occurs? Three miles an hour. And more often than not, it simply comes at the pace of Jesus. The pace of one who was walking alongside, who is in relationship, who is loving and is listening and is offering. And while it might be really exciting to see the miracles happen really fast, the good news is this. The longer that you take this journey, the more you can begin to see the ways in which you have been a part of the miraculous kingdom of God.
My hope and my prayer for this congregation, and you know this, is that we will keep journeying together. That we will not give in. I know people think I'm a Luddite and hate technology. That's only partially true. But that we will not give in to the cleanliness and the efficiency and the massive nature of technology. But that we will be countercultural. Why? Because Jesus is countercultural. And that we will begin to experience the miraculous kingdom of God as we journey with Jesus and with one another until Christ returns and God's kingdom fully comes on earth as it is in heaven. One step at a time. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Three mile an hour, God. We give you praise for what you do. You work with us in a steady, in a stable, and applauding way. May we know, God, that we do not have to be you but way we also see as we journey with one another the joy of being a part of the miracle of who you are. That your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. I do want to show you as well today that we have a uh, baptism. Is that right? Do we have that picture? And this is one of the great things. You know, Kelly, who's there on the right, I mean, she was kind of grew up a lot in this particular congregation and uh, she taught our kids before she ever had kids of her own. She was a, a teacher and uh, then several years ago I got to marry uh, uh, her and Thomas and, uh, and that's Wilson in the middle. Um, and it's this great reminder again, as we keep saying about this tapestry, right? Her uh, parent, maybe you know, uh, Tim Millar. Most people know Tim Millar, whether they want to or not, they know him and that's, um, um, but again, it is this, it is this beauty of being able to slowly walk alongside people and see them begin to grow in the kingdom of God. And I just want to say what a joy that will be uh, later on uh, at the 1045 service to be able to baptize them. I want to close with one last thing. I didn't have time to talk about it, which is why I'm talking about it now. Jesus, after this, went to a deserted place. Do you remember the challenge? It's still in place. The challenge for you to be still. Remember this. If Jesus had to go to a deserted place because he was exhausted from doing the work of the Lord, then who else needs to go to deserted places and to be still and to be quiet? Unless you are better than Jesus. Anybody here? So the challenge is still in place. You've got another month and a half. We're only halfway there. And if you haven't started yet, I didn't mean to look at you, Andrew, but if you haven't started yet, or if you started and you fell off, the man wagon, get back on it again. Three things you can do. Take 10 minutes every morning. Be still before you read email, before you look at the news, before you do anything. First time in your car alone, turn off everything. Just drive. Just be still. 
Go for a walk three or four times a, three or four times a week. Take 30 minutes with nothing on and just be present. There are other options. Do whatever you want. Those are the three that we suggested. But I want to continue to encourage that. I want you to see it. What is Jesus' life like? What does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? This is a part of it. Again, it's not a nice thing. It's not a fun thing. It's not an exciting thing. That's not the reason we do it. We do it because it's a necessary thing. If it, Jesus needed it, we all need it. Amen? All right. I love working all the way up to 10:15. Let's stand up. Sisters and brothers in Christ, it is a joy to journey alongside of you. And how fast? Three miles an hour. Three miles an hour, the way, the speed of love. What a great image. So walk out from this place. Take 30 minutes to get out to your car, but still only eat one donut, please. <laughs> Take the time to get to know people. This is a part of what it means to be a part of the family and the kingdom of God. And with that, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you this day and until Christ Jesus returns. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Amen.